You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, in this moment, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would meet with us and exalt your son. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to work together with, uh, through Isaiah chapter 11. So if you have that open uh, in your worship guide. Um, you know, Advent season is a yearly a yank on our chain, I think. It's intended to, to jerk us from our normal patterns and to create some space in our lives for reflection, for some measured introspection, and maybe even some realignment. And I think our souls need these kinds of activities. I I know that mine does, and I'm grateful for the rhythm of the church's calendar year to help us move into this kind of seasonal move. A a friend of mine that I saw uh, recently shared shared a quote with me. We were discussing together midlife and mid-career kinds of issues, and, and he and his wife had had hit some, I think, special challenges in their marriage when they became empty nesters, so I was feeling him out on that. And and then he texted me this quote from a book that he had been reading called um, Rough Patches. Uh, I think I've read this quote to myself over ten times now. It's about to become eleven. But let let me read it to you if you don't mind. This This is from that book Rough Patch. The midpoint of life represents the moment of maximal conflict between our drive to seek external solutions to our emotional dilemmas and our recognition that ultimately they don't work. In the rough patch, we're forced to realize, often against our will, that the life-building activities of our youth, job, relationship, children, house, they've not taken care of what's unresolved within. We still yearn for what we're not sure And what we've achieved doesn't entirely fill us. There are some phrases in there that just stick in me. Have not taken care of what's unresolved within. We yearn for what we're not sure. Our achievements don't fill us. I mean, these phrases have stuck with me for uh, since I first read this quote. and And I think that there's a kind of providential irony in our season of Advent. Because this is a season for a renewed vision of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. It's a season where the residual buildup of the preceding year and its particular challenges to our lives and to our faith, they can be reset. And the grace of repentance can settle us into a new year and a renewed purpose. I like all of this. And we need space, I think, for this kind of reflection and prayer. Yet, and here's the ironic part. This season of the year is without doubt, and we all know this, the busiest and the most hectic. We, we know it. We don't need Charlie Brown and Linus to remind us every year. So I'm not saying these things to really put a strain on anybody. Um, the Genelette family, for example, had six basketball games to attend last week. Save your emails. I know it's unhealthy. Um, but that which nags at us on the inside, and it cries out for peace where there is no peace, that's the reason for the season of Advent's existence. And even if it's only at church on Sundays where this space and time are carved out for reflection, then that's okay too. 
Because we all come to Jesus as we are, knowing that he receives us when we place our trust in him week in and week out. Now, all of this talk about Advent season uh, is a setup. It's a kind of clearing of the deck. So we can hear Isaiah's promises this morning out of Isaiah chapter 11 about the coming Messiah. Because Isaiah speaks right into the chaos of our lives. Isaiah promises in Isaiah chapter 11 a king who's going to come in time and he's going to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned just before the irony of the season of Advent. And there's an irony in Isaiah's promise here in chapter 11 as well. These, the promises of these chapters and the ones that precede it, think these verses. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. All of these promises emerge in a time of great distress for Judah. The kingdom of Israel up in the north had conspired with the Syrians to the northwest to come down to Jerusalem and to Judah and to destroy them. Well, that didn't quite work out, but after them came another group, the Assyrians. They were a very bad lot. And they, too, in time, would wreak their havoc on the southern kingdom of Judah. All to say, these were not happy times for Isaiah and the small kingdom of Judah in the south. There were dangers that were lurking all around. And here's Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 11 and then in Isaiah chapter 12, prophesying these words of wheel and future hope. Emmanuel, a coming child. And now the promised son of Jesse, all emerging as their future leader and their ideal hope. And I have to say, I think this takes some kind of prophetic chutzpah on Isaiah's part to make these claims about a promised kingdom of peace. How can Isaiah dare speak such such things in the dangerous times in which he lived? Why can Isaiah do this? He can make such promises because of the character of God. God's no of judgment and the prophets always yield in time to the yes of his grace. Cut down trees, which is the image that's used here in Isaiah 11. A cut down tree indicates the tree's death. A tree stump tells a tale of, of times in the past when kids maybe played in their branches or fruit dropped from their limbs or birds perched in their leaves. But a tree that's cut down will no longer offer the delights of its existence. It's cut down now. It's dead. It's a thing of the past. The stump is a grave marker for that which was. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But it's the character of God to delight in taking things that are dead or that appear to be dead and bringing them to life again. It's what he does at his best. When all seems lost, God can bring life and he can offer hope. And Isaiah 11 is an Advent text, and it's about as good an Advent text as one can find in all the Bible, because it's a promise for God's future with his people. And it's a promise that's marked, unmarked by the turmoil of the present. And what's at the core of this promise in Isaiah 11 about God's future, about him taking life from the midst of death? Well, two things, and you can see it in Isaiah 11. The first, and you see this in the first five verses, is a promise of a spirit-filled king. He comes from Jesse, it says in chapter 11, verse 1. I think the imagery here in Isaiah 11 is beautiful, and it speaks to the promise of God doing something new in our midst, something new in the categories that are quite old and yet still familiar. 
Notice that Jesse's name is mentioned. The fact that Jesse is mentioned here, it's, it's language of a fresh start. It's a new beginning. The reference back to Jesse is similar to the reference in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are the least among the tribes of Judah, from you shall come one who will be mighty. It takes us away in Micah 5 from the cosmopolitan center of Jerusalem with its political and its religious elites out into the, the hinterlands, out into the backwoods of Bethlehem once again. When Samuel comes to Jesse and he said, let me see your sons, and one by one they trot out, handsome, strong, impressive, but God went with none of them. He chose the young buck out on the pasture, the kid that was still wet behind his ears, little David. God operates in counterintuitive measures because God really wants his choicest servants to know something. That if they are, quote, unquote, successful in what God has called them to do, it will only be because of the power of God in their lives. Paul speaks about boasting in the Lord. And here we are in Isaiah 11 going all the way back to the humble origins of Jesse and the backwaters of Bethlehem. And our nativity scenes that we have in our homes, they all attest to these origins. Uh, Back to Bethlehem. Back to this simple scene, along with a birth in a cattle stall. It's more Golden Corral and less Frank Stitz, to be honest with you. (laughs) So what marks our new king? Who is this king? The Spirit of God rests upon him. He does not operate in the strength of his own might. I think this is really important to recognize about the coming king. He does not justify himself but he functions in the strength of God's own self, of God's own spirit. This is the ruler we so desperately yearn for. The king who demonstrates his strength, not by rolling up his sleeves and the brutality of his own sheer force like the Assyrians. Not like that. But as one guided by the spirit of the Lord. And what are the marks of the spirit-filled leadership of the coming king, this, this offspring of Jesse, this new shoot that's springing up from the cut-down tree? He has wisdom and insight. He has counsel and might. He operates in knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of these pictures here and descriptions of this coming king speak to the proper relationship between the creator and the creature. And these are the promises, by the way, that find their point of reference in Jesus Christ. No earthly king was able to operate in this fashion, but Jesus alone and the power of the Holy Spirit embodies God's righteous rule, and he shows us in his humanity what the proper relationship is between God and his creation. What's our Advent hope? For the coming of the kingdom and all of its fullness, for a world that would be marked by the righteous rule of Jesus Christ, made effective and powerful in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit himself. I have to confess to you all, since we're here, um, I I think it's really easy to grow cynical in this season if we're not careful. I'm speaking to myself here. The um, let there be peace on earth songs that will flitter through the airwaves or maybe your Spotify account, they really kind of seem anemic and flabby, don't they? Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. It's... I mean, something like that sung in the face 
of the deep sorrow of our world just doesn't seem to cut it. It's like trying to sweeten the ocean by dropping a Splenda packet in it. And we can appreciate the sentiment, and we might even get a little misty-eyed in the process. But deep down, we know. We know we need heaven on earth. And without it, there's not going to be any real and lasting peace on earth. Here's the danger, I think, with the cynicism, at least as I face it. Is that we know that the grace of God in Christ can bring peace to so many complicated situations in our world and in our lives. We see him doing it all the time. We're right to hope and to pray for it. Bring your peace in the relationships that we embody right now that are fractured or in the world that's not whole. Bring your peace. Yet we still know, don't we, that lions and lambs aren't lying down together. Our whole lives live into Advent. And our deep prayers for Christ's return to make all things new. Come, King Jesus, please come and rule in the strength of your meekness and in the power of your humility. Come, Lord, and bring this kind of leadership with you. Our world so desperately needs it. Our lives so desperately need it. So so the first picture here of this uh, springing forth of this new seed from Jesse's line promises a coming king who will operate in the power of the Spirit. And then lastly, in in verses 6 through 9, we have a sense of the renewal of creation. I have a colleague at Beeson Divinity School who will hear some powerful uh, passages of Scripture read, and he'll say, I see why that one made the cut. And when I hear Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, I can see why it made the cut. I mean, this is a rich text. I want to read it to you one more time. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, oh my lands. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And then in one of my favorite turns of phrases in Isaiah 11, They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. Why is that going to happen? Because the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Wolves with lambs, leopards and goats, children and cobras. If I was Isaiah and I was writing this, I would say raccoons and chickens. I lost all my backyard chickens a few years ago in a nightly holocaust to one raccoon. So this is the new creation that Isaiah is talking about here. This is the promise of everything being made new. Um, We'll see it again in Isaiah 65. The coming messianic reign will return creation to its intended purposes before the entrance of sin and rebellion into our world. And in that moment, the clock's going to turn backward as it moves to the future moment. And creation, we're going to hear it, breathe this deep exhale sigh of relief. It too will no longer live under the burden of sin's reach. Gazelles nestling alongside a lion. And they won't know the instinct of fear anymore. No breathless darting for survival. Just peace, as it says there in verse 9, They will not hurt or destroy. You see, we all know it, don't we, in this season, that 
a sentimental Starbucks or Coca-Cola commercial just isn't going to cut it. But perhaps this morning we could give Isaiah a try. Because Isaiah's portrait of the coming reign of Jesus Christ is about as hopeful and beautiful as anyone can imagine. True peace on earth. The coming kingship of Jesus Christ. The moment when heaven and earth collide. And what's the result of this? The knowledge of the Lord will be like the waters that cover the sea. I mean, think about this. As far as the eye can travel... Everyone will know and name their Lord and confess their Christ. Everyone. I think it's fascinating when we turn to Mark's gospel. Um, And it depicts for us Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It does so with with Mark's typical streamlined style. Not a lot of details in Mark. It's, and immediately this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So no phrase in Mark's gospel is is wasted. And in the two verses in Mark chapter 1 that describe his temptation in the desert, it says this phrase, which is a bit kind of hard to unpack. It says this, And Jesus was with the wild animals. I think it's hard to know the full extent of that phrase. Perhaps it means something just rather simple. Jesus was out there where the wild animals are, out in the desert. Maybe. But I think it means more. Because Isaiah, the prophet, fuels so much of Mark's thought. And even here, it appears that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness has its own Isaiah 11 moment. Jesus is out there being tempted, and he's at peace with the wild animals. The desert scene becomes a new creation moment in Jesus. It's like a scene from Narnia as Jesus spends time with with the wild animals and he knows no fear out there. To be with Jesus, to be in him, is to already in this moment inhabit the promises and the reality of the future kingdom. If anyone is in Christ, Paul tells us, New creation has already broken out in your midst. We're not in it yet completely. But there's a really true and real sense in which we are when we're in Christ, located in him by faith. Because someday, someday there will be peace on earth. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.